my name is Jordan, and I serve with Church 21 Montreal, um, and I am so grateful uh, to the Lord to be here this morning. I, I often hear about uh, Reach Montreal and what you're doing here, and it fills my heart with joy um, to hear of this family of God and, and what God is doing. Um, and so I count this as a privilege to be with you uh, this morning on Father's Day of all days in particular. Um, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by reading just our verses through from, uh, from Mark, uh, then I'll make a short prayer, and then we'll get into unpacking the text itself. <clears throat> so if you have your Bible, you can turn uh, with me to Mark chapter 3 uh, in verse 31. Mark chapter 3 in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and Standing outside, they sent him, that's Jesus, and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister, and my mother. Father, I pray that you would illuminate this text to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. That you would grow us in you, that you would forge us into this family that you speak of here, as only you can. In your name, amen. Have you ever felt misunderstood by your family. I want you to at least try and think of a time. You know, maybe it was your, your mom or your dad or your Aunt Kathy. I have an Aunt Kathy, she's great, but. <laughs> um, it could be an accusation that was made against you that was actually false. Maybe it was, you know, <clears throat> a dismissive attitude towards something that you're very passionate about. A decision you made that you felt critiqued in. They didn't really take the time to ask the questions to understand you. Whatever it was, being misunderstood, these experiences are shaping to us. Well, why? Well, because we long to be understood by the people who are closest to us. The people who are closest to us. And Jesus, we see in this text, he felt that. We see in this text, Jesus misunderstood by the people who were closest to him, his own family. And the question that I wanna have us keep in mind today is in the face of this, in the face of this misunderstanding, in the face of the pain Jesus would have inevitably felt at that misunderstanding, how did he remain resilient in the calling that God had for him on his life? How did he remain on course? Because that's a question that we should be asking ourselves as well, isn't it? How do we remain on course as disciples of Jesus in the face of misunderstanding, pain, and pressure? You're going through a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark at the same speed we are in our own church gathering, Church 21. I normally uh, preach in NDG grateful um, to be able to switch it up this morning. It makes it a little bit more interesting. But each week, what you've been doing, like we have been doing, is going through Mark little bit by little bit. Um, and we're at the point in Mark chapter 3 
where we get to understand, we get to a, a window of insight into Jesus and how he relates to his family. There's a sort of storyline that we're gonna begin to see as we work through Mark and that relationship that he has with his family. And it starts, I think we really start to get into it in this gospel in, in verse 31, which is where I started reading. So I'm gonna be going verse by verse here. Verse 31, and his mother's, his mother and his brothers uh, came. All right, so it might be surprising to us that Jesus you know, had, had mother and had brothers, that Jesus had a family, of course, because we worship Jesus as, as God and maybe that sort of slips us. You know, but Jesus, he actually, he was fully human as well. Yes, he was God, but he was also fully human. And so he was embedded in humanity, in relationship, in having a mother and brothers and sisters as well. They were just, you know, step siblings, if you would have it, born after his miraculous birth, the Christmas story. And so here they are, his family, and it says they came. His family came and they're standing outside. Now, why would his family come? Why would Jesus' family come? What about what's been happening in the life of Jesus up to this point that would lead them to show up at this point in time? This is a question for you. Say it out. What's going on in Jesus's life that makes his family show up? Pharisees are after him. Okay, yeah. And they're after him. Why? Yeah, because of his ministry and his miracles. Um, this is what we've seen leading up to this point in chapter three. Uh, even as you know, Jesus has healed somebody, um, it's controversial. He begins to call disciples to follow him. People are like leaving their livelihoods to follow Jesus. And his teaching is causing quite a stir. There's a crowd forming. The news is being passed along. It's spreading. And his family catch wind of it. And in verse 21, if we back up in our chapter, we see... When his family heard about this, the crowd and all that's going on, they heard it. They went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. They went out to seize him. What is his family doing here? They're staging a family intervention. Have you ever been part of a family intervention? I certainly have been part of some family interventions. I've had some directed towards myself, right? I have, uh, I have two brothers and two sisters. I guess we're a comparatively uh, large family. And family interventions were, were how disputes were often settled. I mean, did they put enough gas in the van or not? Family intervention. <laughs> oh, it's even how one, uh, one girlfriend relationship in my family was ended, a family intervention, believe it or not. What is a family intervention? Well, if you don't get it yet, it's those times in which you're so concerned about a family member, you know, nothing you say, nothing you do seems to reach them. And so you go and you gather up other members of your family and together you go confront the person. Well, why? Because maybe they'll see it's not just you, you know, it's, it's all of us. We see the same thing and they'll change their ways, right? That's what a family intervention is. And this is what Jesus' family is doing. He is, they are staging a family intervention. It says in the text, they're going to seize him. Well, why? Well, the verse says, because they thought he was out of his mind. Jesus' own family thought he was out of his mind. You imagine that. Last week in this text, you would have saw the scribes, the religious experts. They thought he was crazy. They said, you know, it's um, by the power of Satan that he does the works he does. That would have been hard to hear, the criticism of the scribes. But how much more hard to hear the criticism of your own family He's out of his mind. That would have been not just hard, but painful. 
For those of you who've been misunderstood, you can relate to that. You know that it's the criticisms of the ones who you know the best that hurt you the worst. And what's comforting from this text is that Jesus knew that. Jesus felt that. Jesus was misunderstood too. Allow that to comfort your heart. And what happens? Back in our passage in verse 31, we see the family has come and they're standing outside. And then in verse 32, it says, and a crowd was sitting around him. All right, so you have, you know, this contrast. Very interesting. You have the family uh, outside standing and then you have the disciples inside sitting at the feet of Jesus. And outside, well, what does the family come to bring? We're gonna see misunderstanding, assumptions about who Jesus is. And inside, what have these disciples come to bring? Well, attentiveness to the presence of Jesus, which raises the question for us. What posture do you approach Jesus with? Are you sitting at his feet, eager to be shaped by his presence, his goodness, his mercy, his compassion? Or do you find yourself outside, standing? Maybe you're not really sure what this is all about. Or maybe you have assumptions about what Christianity is. Either way, Jesus bids you come. He extends an invitation to you that says, come unto me whatever it is, whatever assumptions you have. But notice the posture in coming that you must take. That for you to come in, you must sit down. For you to come in, you must sit down. That doesn't mean that you don't have questions anymore. It doesn't mean you don't have assumptions anymore. But it, what it does mean is you take the posture of listening for the voice of Jesus. That is the position of faith seeking understanding. That is the position of a disciple someone who is in the presence of Jesus and sitting at his feet. That is the position that you and I are all to take as well. Does that make sense? Will you come and sit at his feet? This is the posture that Jesus calls us into. You know, you can almost imagine a context like this. We're in social distancing. It's not very crowded in here. But Jesus, he's standing at the front, you're sitting, and his family come in at the back. They see the place is packed, and so they're like, okay, let's just pass the message through. And so they talk to you, who talks to you, talks to you, talks to you. And there's an interruption, right? What is the message that they pass up? Verse 32, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And so you can almost imagine the interruption. Jesus stops and he says, ah, I hear my mother and my brothers are seeking me. Verse 33 answers, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat with him. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Ouch, ouch. Can you imagine the family standing there at the back hearing this? Can you imagine how they must have felt in this moment, Jesus redefining the family and saying, here, this is my family, and there they are at the back. The sense of betrayal they would have felt, like a sword cutting through their own hearts. Oh, the misunderstanding. There had been misunderstandings already in the life of Jesus. As you look at the life of Jesus, the story, the family story, the arc of it, you see early on Jesus, 
He's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple. His family lose him, his parents can't find him and when they finally find him they say, son, why have you treated us so? His mother chipping in, we have searched for you in great distress. You can hear the pain in his mother's voice. And Jesus has replied, don't you know I should be about my father's business or house? Can you imagine being Joseph, your son saying, don't you know I should be about a different father's house? Father's Day after all. <laughs> or a different father's business, not the carpentry business. I got other business that will protect and provide for me. How cutting that would have been, the misunderstanding. And then here in this text, you only see that pain and that confusion magnified. Magnified. Why does Jesus answer this way? Why does he answer this way? Is it that he needs to, you know, more space and they're cramping his style? Is it that he doesn't want to be a carpenter and carry on the family business? <laughs> Is it that he doesn't love his family? No. No, it's not that Jesus doesn't love his family. It's not that Jesus doesn't want to do carpentry. And it's not, certainly not, that Jesus wants to express his individualism, which is what this culture would want to make a text like this say, right? It's not about that. See, in this context and in this culture, this is a, a culture that has made the family paramount, right? That if you were single, I mean, your one track focus in life is like get hitched, you know, make it or break it. If you're barren, if you can't have children, man, that must mean something is wrong with you. You're like cursed. If you are a widower, my goodness, your fortunes have been decimated. Oh, and into a culture like this in which the family is paramount, Jesus speaks in and critiques it. And he says, I have an identity greater than this. I have an identity that, that makes all of this pale in comparison. And he would say the same as our, of our expressive individualism as well. He'd say, I, may, I have something that makes this all pale in comparison. I have an identity for you that is conferred to you by God and God alone. And so this is why Jesus can say what he says and do what he did. He knows who he is. He knows his identity. He knows the calling that has been conferred to him by God. And so he can face the pressure. And this begins to answer the question we started with about remaining resilient, doesn't it? How do you remain resilient in the face of the pressure and misunderstanding and critiques and assumptions? Well, Seth, you know who you are. So you know who you are. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are in Christ? How he's called you to, to be and then to in turn live in this world because if you do, it will be a North Star in your life so that no matter what hits you, you can stay on track, focused for him. And so as well-intentioned as Jesus' family was, Jesus will no longer give into the pressure of this situation because he knows who he is in Christ. You know, this makes you wonder, as his family travels home, what do you think they were thinking? Do you think they were thinking something like, this confirms it for us, right? He really is out of his mind. This prideful prick, like he's, the crowds have gotten to his head. I'm glad I stayed outside. I'm glad I didn't go in. And yet, what do we see? Jesus still loved them. He still pursued them. In chapter six, we'll see Jesus, he visits his hometown. Of course, they know of his teaching. They know of his power. Chapter six, verse three, you see this response. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simeon? And are not his sisters here? 
with us, his family. There he is again with them. And it says, they took offense at him. They took offense at him. See, as long as Jesus was just that, the carpenter, as long as his, Jesus was, you know, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and so on and so on, he was welcome. But as soon as Jesus, you know, begins to say, I'm more than just the, the son of Mary, I'm, I'm the son of God, he's no longer welcome. They take offense at him. The question I want to ask you is this. Does he offend you? This might seem like a strange question to ask, but if I wanna say this, if, if Jesus has never offended you, I don't think you've actually encountered him for who he really is. Because we, when we encounter Jesus for who he really is, we find somebody who what? Who perfectly does God's will. And then what? He calls us to be perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. And that means for us to perfectly love God, our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you're like, well, what's offensive about that? What's offensive about loving God with all of me? Well, what's offensive about it is that if you love God with all of you, that means you have to prioritize him. That means you have to put him first over everything and that's inevitably gonna cut up against certain things that you want and love dearly in your life. He is going to slice into you and offend you. You see from this, Jesus, he's no softy. He's no pushover. Jesus himself said, Matthew 10, 34, do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Like, how is this not offensive? Are you listening to what Jesus is saying? He goes on, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Look at the worship that Jesus demands of you. Look at how he defines taking up the cross and following Christ. Look at these demands. Man, I love my dad. It's Father's Day. Jesus demands that I love him over my dad. I love my, my siblings. I mean, we live all probably in Montreal because none of us really wanted to move away because we actually really like each other and you know there was no pressures that made us do that. Jesus demands I love him over even my siblings. I love my wife and my kids. I love Hazel. I love Jackson. I love them to death. Jesus demands I love him over even them. Like how counterintuitive is that? Like for my spouse, my call as a husband is to make her fall in love with a greater lover than myself. That's the kind of worship that Jesus demands of us. It's so all-encompassing. It's so all-encompassing. It's what? It's offensive. It slices right through the deepest and most precious parts of our lives. Oh, that good things, like a relationship and a spouse and your own children can become, if you let them, ultimate things. And so choosing Jesus will inevitably come up against them in some way. And that can be so painful and yet it is so necessary. Why? Because this is one of the ways with which you can know you're actually worshiping the real God. <laughs> See, 
When was the last time God showed you to be wrong? Ask yourself that question. When was the last time God in his word actually stopped me in my tracks, cut through something and showed me he was wrong? These moments are so challenging and yet they're so painful. They are painful, but they're necessary. They're necessary because they lead us into greater worship. How does it lead you into greater worship? Because it causes your heart to ask that question, is he worth it? Is Jesus truly worthy of these demands? All of this stuff I just said, I mean, that's, that's audacious request. Is Jesus truly worthy of the demands that he places on our lives? You know, I believe that you'll find that if you spend time with Jesus, that you will not, <laughs> you can't help but answer, yes, he is. He is worthy of the demands that he places on our lives. You see that even when Jesus calls us to leave our family, even when Jesus calls us to leave the deepest, most dearest things in our lives, you can know that he hasn't asked you to do something he hasn't already done himself. Isn't that comforting? He's already done this himself. Jesus felt the abandonment of his family. And he didn't just feel the abandonment of his family. There was a time when he could feel more than just the abandonment of his family. There'd be a time when he would take on for us the ways with which we misunderstand and reject each other. The ways with which we live for ourselves. The ways with which when we try and derive ultimate worth from spouses and relationships and our, even our own children, we end up putting a burden on them they can't hold and we end up fracturing and crushing those relationships. Jesus is gonna take that all on himself on a cross, our disordered wills. And because God is holy, the community of God is holy, the father cannot have that in his presence. And the father had to turn his face away. And so from this, we see that Jesus faced abandonment for you so that you could be adopted into the family of God. There was no other way. This was his father's will. And so what happens? What happens if you take that question we're asking, is he worth it? And you take it to the foot of the cross where Jesus is in a moment of God forsakenness. What do you think you would answer? I believe that in that moment that Jesus would take that question, is he worth it? He would turn it around and he would say, it was worth it for you. It was worth it for you. All of that pain, all of that misunderstanding, all of that rejection and abandonment that you have caused me, I've taken it on and it was worth it for you. Worth it so that you could see my attractive, compassionate goodness and that I could bring you into and adopt you into the family of God. This is what Jesus has done for you. And this is why he is worthy of the demands that he places on our lives. See, Jesus doesn't call us to give up our family and the deepest, most precious parts of our lives just to pain us. It is a life-saving surgery. And this, of course, is what his family in this passage can't see. They can't see this yet. That for Jesus to do the Father's will, yes, it hurt, but this was the very means by which they could be adopted into a greater, a truer family. A family not born of ethnicity, a family not born of tradition, but a family born of the Spirit. A family that was diverse, that was global, that was growing, and would last forever. 
In other words, Jesus and fulfilling his calling and knowing his identity and stepping into that was the best and the truest way he could ever love his family. You know where I think you start to see this click is later in the gospel. And John, Jesus, he looks at Mary, his mother at the foot of the cross, and he says, mother, behold your son. And then Jesus tells John, somebody he is not related to, disciple, behold your mother. You can see the beginnings of the new family of God bonds being formed in that moment. A family not built on kinship, a family built on discipleship to Jesus. That Mary had finally come to see Jesus for who he really was and she had faith in him and so she was adopted into that new family Jesus was inaugurated. The newer, the truer, the greater family of God. And you know what else you see? It's not just her. You see other members of Jesus' family. Acts chapter one. Some of Jesus' family is with the disciples and they're waiting for the spirit to be poured out on Pentecost in faith. So you see this arc in the storyline of Jesus' own family, a household redeemed by faith in Jesus. And the same, my friends, can be true of you. That by faith in Jesus, you can be adopted into this family of God. Praise him. Do you see him worthy? Do you see him worthy of putting your faith in like that? This is what I've been trying to emphasize. It's so important that you see him as worthy so that you want to do his will. It's so important you see him as worthy so you want to do his will. The will that is mentioned here, verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. The will of God. What does it mean to do the will of God? Does this mean we have to be like obedient to get into this family, this family of God? Well, no, no. Jesus is the basis of our acceptance, his perfection, his obedience, the basis of our acceptance into the family of God. But what you can expect, that because you have been accepted by Jesus, you will want to obey. That is the rightful evidence of being accepted into the family of God is obedience to his will, obedience to his call on your life. And that's a transformation. He works from the inside out. He places his spirit in you and he changes you. He changes your desires. He changes you so you want to do God's will. This is a dramatic change, right? This is a dramatic change. It changes everything. It changes, right, to the ways that we interact like we see here with our with family, with our own relationships. See, what is the family that Jesus is talking about here? I've already mentioned uh, some aspects of it, right? The family of God, the church, is those who do the will of God. In other words, this is not a family that is uh, limited by normal human, uh, the, the barriers we experience in normal human relationships. This is not a family that is limited then by uh, gender, by social status, by ethnicity. Families, of course, they can be prejudiced. They can get like snobby about their heritage. They can be exclusive. There's no place for the single person or the widow. But this family... This family, this transcends all of those families in that it's a family that is forged by faith in Jesus. And those barriers then have been removed. They have been removed by Jesus and replaced by the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is what Paul would say. So this is a family. This is what the family is that Jesus is talking about here. Now what holds us back from that? 
what holds us back from being part of a family of God like that? I wanna give uh, four sort of things by way of application as we move towards a close. One is, first thing that can hold us back from really engaging in the family of God would be a critical attitude, attitude towards it, a critical attitude towards uh, the church. You know, it never ceases to amaze me um, how somebody can say like, you know, and I'm part of a church community too, of course, so it never ceases to amaze me how somebody can say like, nobody is real here, nobody is being vulnerable, people just aren't vulnerable here, or I, I'm not being discipled by anybody, this is, it's not enough discipleship, or the preaching, or the music, and it just doesn't cut it for me anymore. I, I don't know, what, what amazes me about this is people can say that and they don't realize they're criticizing themselves. See, if you really saw yourself as part of the family of God, you would see yourself as part of what you're talking about when you say those kinds of things. <laughs> and it doesn't mean, of course, there aren't real concerns that need to be voiced, but there really is a difference. When you see yourself as part of the family of God, you're not gonna say like, why isn't everything put together here yet? You're gonna say, I see these needs. How can I try and help meet them? You see what I'm saying? Or instead of look at how bad this is going or look at all their faults, you say, man, this is so revealing of myself and my own sin and the ways that I do this or that. You'll see yourself as part of the family of God. Criticism can hold you back from the family of God. What's another thing? Unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations can hold you back from the family of God. You hear a vision like I'll you know, I've given, <laughs> you hear it spoken about, you're like, that is so beautiful, but Jordan, let me tell you, I have been in the church a long time and it's just disappointing, I'm disillusioned to it, I no longer want to engage with it, this kind of thing. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, he who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. See, my friends, worship Jesus as your ultimate joy and hope and affection, not your church community. They can't do that for you. Inevitably, on this side of history, the church community is gonna hurt you. You're gonna feel pain. They're gonna sin against you. We live in a broken, fallen world. We're all sinners saved by the grace of Jesus. But look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He will not disappoint you. It's actually for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. You know what part of that joy was? Being in community with you. <laughs> Inevitably, the church community will disappoint you. But look to Jesus. Let's not have unrealistic expectations about it. Another thing that can hold us back from ch church community is a lack of commitment. <laughs> a lot of us, we love the vision, of course, I'm giving here deep, meaningful community, people you can you know, share your fears with, your struggles with, you can go real with, you're like, yes. And then you're like, but you gotta show up. You gotta prioritize your time. You gotta change certain relationships. You gotta, <laughs> and you don't do it. Because we love the idea of community, we love the benefits of community, but we don't wanna to commit to it. And commitment requires these kinds of hard changes in our lives. We live in a commitment adverse culture. And yet, Jesus, again, what do we see in him? He's not commitment adverse. He doesn't have an allergy to commitment like we do. He's a covenantal God. He committed to you right to the point of death. You can commit to him with your life. 
and the blood-bought church that he gave his life for. If you love Jesus, you'll love his church. It's that simple. Embrace the adoption into the family Jesus has died for. So it can be lack of commitment. It can be unrealistic expectations. It can be a critical attitude towards the church. And I'll give one final uh, one here. And that is that we don't prioritize it. We don't prioritize the family of God. What do, I, what do I mean by prioritizing the family of God? I've already talked about commitment. Specifically from this text, we don't prioritize the family of God over our biological families. That comes directly out of this text. And that's really hard for here to hear, but our allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom first, your biological family second. And I'm gonna nuance this, but this is very important for you to hear. Christ and his kingdom is first, your primary relationship, if you have friends and family, well, family, siblings, parents, whatever, who are believers, your primary relationship with them is the fact that you're both believers, not that you're both by blood. That's the way that Jesus has come and turned over what we mean and we think about family by bringing us into this new covenant family. It eclipses the previous family that the Jewish culture was so fixed about. And we miss that. And sometimes we say to each other, well, like, you know, it's, it's not my, you know, it's not my spiritual family, you know? It's not really kind of like my real family. What are you talking about? The spiritual family is your real family. God is spirit. It's, it's more real. It's the most real family you can ever be a part of because this is a family that is eternal. It will never go away. Your marriage will pass away. Your family kinships will pass away. This family will never pass away. Look around the room. Look around the room. These are your brothers and your sisters, your mothers and your fathers in Christ. These are some of the most valuable relationships you'll ever have. Now, does this mean, as a father, Father's Day, you neglect your wife and children? Remember I said there was a nuance coming. No, <laughs> of course not. If you're a married man or woman, your primary mandate, your ministry is to your family. That's your primary ministry. This is why Paul would teach. It's better for some for the sake of the kingdom of God not to marry, right? But if you have, that's your primary ministry. But then what? Your extended family is the church family. And then comes your biological family. It's in that order. And it's so easy for us to mix that up, to mix it up. We do that all the time. See, a, true, a church that truly believes this will have people that belong. People who are single will belong. People who are widowed will belong. The orphans will belong just as much as your biological intact family units. That's an implication of this. Another one is that our lives will no longer just brush. Our lives will connect. Our lives will no longer just brush, but connect. What do I mean by this? Where is it that your lives brush? Hopefully not here. I'll give another example from another place. Your lives brush on the metro. You're all going the same place. Yeah, we're all going to heaven together, yeah. But man, you don't really get into deep conversations with people on the metro, do you? Those are like very like collegial professional sort of like, hi, maybe relationships. You're just commuters. That's where your lives brush. Where do your lives really connect? Think of it more like Christmas Eve sharing life together, your stories together, maybe weeping together. That's what the church is called to be, a place like that. Not where life's just brush, not where you're just commuters, but where lives connect. 
That's why Paul talks about it. All these one another's, love one another, serve one another, be devoted to one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, one another, one another, one another. And so here we are, right? This is the church. You are the local church with each other. Reach Montreal, you know? Can your attendance at this gathering really allow your lives to connect in this way? No, it's not possible. There's no way. I mean, I'm doing most of the talking right now anyway, right? <laughs> no. And so are, let me ask you this to like really take this home. Are you, are you forming deep spiritual friendships with others? Are you able to be open about your needs and share your weaknesses with others? Do you counsel one another? Do you encourage one another? Do you forgive one another? Do you love and serve one another? So you can come to this gathering every week and it would be so easy to avoid this. You could completely miss this. See, unless you're engaging in deep, meaningful community that goes beyond an hour or two on a Sunday morning, you will never experience the fullness of God available for you in Christ Jesus. These are your brothers and your sisters. These are your mothers and your fathers in Christ. It is so important that as a Christian, you do not just functionally, you can say, you know, I believe this. Yeah, 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 these friends, these are my family, the church, yeah, yeah. It's so important that you just don't believe this, that you function this out, that you practically live this out in your life, that you don't functionally abandon each other, but that you enter into the fullness of the adoption that Jesus won for you on the cross my gentle and lowly savior. He did that for you. So these are all things that can hold us back from experiencing the family of God. I'm gonna move into prayer with us, but before I do, I wanna read 1 John chapter three and a few verses from it. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but actions and truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have adopted us into your family. We rejoice in your grace to us in this way, that no matter where we come from, that we have a place we can belong. Thank you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, I pray against our commitment allergies. I pray against our hearts that are critical I pray against the ways that we misprioritize and mislove. Jesus, would you come in and meet us there? You change our hearts. Would you change my heart? Jesus, make me more like you. Help me to see you for who you really are. Help me to love you for who you really are. And then love the family that you have adopted me into. Change me, oh God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.